So this morning the attitude of relaxed attention, awareness, kind of composing mind, mind tends to wander and uh, <coughs> so that the, this composing is done through this is attentiveness to the present using such focuses as the sensations of the body or and the uh, <coughs> breath anapanasati sound of silence that which is here and now always mind <coughs> thinking mind proliferating mind uh, wanders away into memories of the past and thoughts about the future. So this is where you can always uh, remind yourself of this emphasis on the Tantitiko Dhamma, here and now, enlightenment now, just as a, just because the, you're when you start thinking about yourself and your practice and about your life and uh, your relationships and on and on like that, then it wanders off into all kinds of suppositions, fears, anxieties, regrets, guilt, uh, doubts, uncertainty. This is all to deal with uh, past and future. So right now, in terms of this present moment, the breath, the posture, sitting, body sitting, consciousness, the breath, inhaling, exhaling, the uh, sound of silence, space, just to, to connect to the to that which is real at this moment and then uh, that puts into perspective that you get some perspective then on the way you tend to create problems, doubts, worries these are all about the future isn't it the future is the unknown so there's always this sense of uncertainty and never quite being sure guessing the maybes, possibilities success or failure in the future in the past you can bring up all kinds of regrets and worries about you know and what will my karma be because I uh, used to go fishing and kill fish will I be reborn in some kind of miserable state in the future <laughs> We spend our lives speculating about possibilities of of being punished for in some way for uh, what we feel guilty about in our past. So this is what thinking is all about, isn't it? Thinking uh, creates this illusion. If we if we don't get beyond our thinking process, then we're caught in a into this uh, realm of time, personality, convention, and these things are always uh, unsatisfied, causing some distress. Even at their best, you can say that they don't really satisfy us. It's something, even when, when we've led, led an impeccable life, and nothing to regret. The future is guaranteed, as, and uh, we can still, you know, the possibilities create problems around whatever. So, you know, this being born is uh, in the in the human form is is a big risk. You know, we find ourselves here. In this realm, in a 
physical body, conscious physical body in a vast universe. It's all pretty um, frightening, actually. It's so vast, so complicated, so immense, so overwhelming. And most people can't stand it. You know, they prefer to to uh, live their lives around just fixing their attention only on their immediate families and the gossip of the time and keep the mind occupied with with uh, things that are affecting them that uh, that don't, that uh, they can actually you know that are close by but that which is the vastness of the universe tends to overwhelm us the mystery of it all because with our human brain and that we can only wonder at it we can only speculate about it so the the Buddha pointed to rather than to just the, the, the kind of petty worries and banality of a human ordinary human life in terms of just you know getting on with the neighbors and working and raising a family even though that's not to be despised he's pointing to uh, the realities of being human a human individual so we're looking rather than just distracting the mind with the gossip of the time the different possibilities of of uh, fantasizing and and imagining we we're putting our attention on what is what actually is a fact right now the fact that the body's here so obvious <clears throat> so then our relationship to the body right now is through awareness rather than through identity we're not criticizing or comparing bodies and trying to make judgments, value judgments about them uh, but just recognizing the experience the actual reality of this body as I experience it now is like this <clears throat> so in this this retreat you know this is I found this uh, uh, an important uh, reflection all the time really to keep bringing the attention back to what is rather than uh, endlessly speculate about the future or regret the past or if those those kind of emotions like regret or guilt or whatever about the past come up and rather than trying to analyze and figure out uh, who's at fault, um, am I wrong or are you wrong or what can we do about it, uh, begin to notice just the, the, the experience of guilt, feeling guilty or regretful is like this. Now, if, if you know, in meditation, uh, Emotions that have been suppressed or doubts in our lives or unresolved problems uh, will arise into consciousness. Which is a sign of good meditation, actually. It's not, I mean, if, if that's what's happening, it's not because you're doing something wrong. But then our way we look at it now is in terms of Dhamma rather than in terms of the worldly values, you know, who's wrong, who's right, and uh, the way we want, you know, the, the present society is a, is a blaming one. We always want to find who can we pin the blame on? Who lied? Who told? Who? Who? Who's? Uh, who's the one to, that we can blame for the fact that this happened or it didn't work out well? for my suffering who can I blame for my suffering 
So there's a lot of interest in that in trying to figure out is it because of parental abuse or injustice in the society or various traumas of childhood or all kinds of things we can blame. Not that these are even wrong. You know, maybe you've got a point there, but it it doesn't resolve the, the problem. Because the problem is the, is the delusion rather than the, the thing in itself. So, rather than, than uh, trying to find who's to blame and, and uh, or we can blame ourselves. You know, we can assume there's something basically flawed or inadequate in myself that I'm just not up to par or something missing to nuts and bolts loose or is born without you know kind of missing certain faculties or I can speculate about myself being some kind of uh, mentally inadequate or inferior being so we tend to you know we blame ourselves blame others blame society blame God it's God's fault <coughs> So in, uh, with Vipassana, insight meditation, actually looking at that, not through the eyes of, a, of the uh, social attitudes, but in terms of Dhamma. Because if, if I'm feeling guilty about things I've done in the past, at this moment, I can at least recognize that guilt this feeling, this mood, this this uh, kind of mood of the mind is like this. And you see what I'm doing, this awareness that embraces the body, consciousness, and <clears throat> mental states as they happen to be, as they happen to arise. And it's not sorting them out in terms of who's who's to blame, but but uh, that actually the the mood the, is a transient, impermanent thing that arises and ceases. Sometimes it's hard to bear. Some of our some sometimes we spend our lives trying to avoid or ignore or deny certain emotional experience that comes up on meditation retreat. And one can live a life, you know, arrange your life in such a way, your normal life that you, uh, daily life, you can have certain ways of distracting the mind or when things reach, uh, you know, that door of consciousness, we have developed defense mechanisms or ways of deflecting, getting away from them. But the advantage of having meditation retreats is that they, the options or distraction are minimal. So we learn to recognize or realize them for what they are, because they are what they are. This is, this is not an attempt to diminish or, uh, you know, judge anything you're experiencing uh, in terms of, uh, you know, giving it a label and saying, uh, you know, saying it's foolish or unimportant, but even if it's nonsense or or foolishness, if it's arising in consciousness, it is what it is. And this knowing, and sati, is our ability to to recognize it for what it is, satipanya. So in the paradigm of the five khandhas, that's helpful because the sanya-sankhara, weighed in the sanya-sankhara, <coughs> begin to, to just observe the power of vedana. This is vedana feeling, is, you know, is this realm. Consciousness with, and sensation. 
So sensitivity, sensation is around is feeling, you know, pleasure, pain. And this applies both to physical, mental conditioning. The mental conditioning is painful or looking at, having to look at something uh, terrible is painful to us, isn't it? Or looking at beauty is happiness. Heaven is beauty and happiness. Hell is ugliness and pain. So in this, this is very honest kind of practice. You know, you're you're not uh, you're not trying to you know deny anything or or even judge it, but recognize it. Because one thing that's quite obvious is something that you're experiencing right now is what it is. It seems like a almost not unnecessary to say that. But it is important to reflect that way, isn't it? Because, it's you know, otherwise we tend to diminish it or judge it, make it more than what it is, or deny it or reject it. If it, you know, if it frightens us or we don't want to face it, and we, we put a lot of effort into trying to get rid of it. So now in this refuge of Bhutto awareness, you know, this is this is a refuge is which is not personal, it's not not uh, an identity that that I assume as a personality, but it's a refuge which to me gives me the, the conf- confidence and faith to look at pain and uh, horror and misery and fears that before as a personality I, I just couldn't bear as a person my level of what I could endure was limited because the personality was, uh, is an illusion and it tends to operate on that you know that principle of how things should or shouldn't be, what's right and wrong, good and bad, and what I should have done, what I should have said, I shouldn't have. Or all the plans of I must change myself, I should in the future be more careful or whatever, then the the mind easily, you know, uh, makes judgment either denies or exaggerates. So, trusting in your awareness is that it's not exaggerating. You're not saying whatever you're feeling right now. You're not, you know, you tend to judge it, then you're lost in it again. You don't even need to know what it is, like give it an accurate definition. A lot of Mood and feeling is it's hard to define in terms of, you know, words and language. Give it, put a name to it, but we certainly are feeling it, experiencing it. So like very rational people that, that like to have everything in, in clear cut ABC, uh, uh, order, you know, where things are one, two, three, ABC, neat packages experience of life is you know because life is like this you're with awareness you're beginning to open to the complexity of a moment of what's impinging on you both from internally emotional uh, feelings that have been triggered off the way your body is right now uh, how it feels uh you know the the things that the the temperature the the situation you're in the breath as it is the uh, you know the 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 society you're in the community all the the problems of relationships and 
duties, responsibilities, um, and the complexity that that comes through uh, sanya sankara can all be received in this moment. So it can be even very confusing. You might find yourself just totally confused right now. But confusion, you can also be aware, isn't it? We know when we, we say, I'm really confused, I don't know what's going on. It's really baffled or full of doubt, uncertainty. And uh, you, but you know that. There's a knowing. Confusion is like this. Being uncertain, doubtful, insecure is like this. So I've mean, I found this really very uh, helpful because I've suffered a lot from from confusion and doubt and uncertainty. And then trying rather than endlessly trying to sort it all out, you know, trying to get clarity and have you know have defi- clear definitions and and be absolutely sure and certain about everything. Because that's what the desire is, you know. As a person, I like to, I like to have security. I want to know. I want to have everything clearly laid out in front of me, and not have any confusing. The confusion is uncomfortable. Being uncertain, doubtful, is, is, is very uncomfortable when your mind is, is, is like that. You just want clarity, accuracy, certainty. Guarantees, safety. But at this moment, whatever, whatever is going on for you, it is what it is. So I encourage you to trust in this awareness. To, this is what you, you, you know, you can really uh, trust and and uh, have faith in is in your own ability to to recognize things the the this moment for what it is as you're experiencing it there's no absolute way of defining this moment it's all variable according to each one of us so this is very important it's the encouragement to trust in your awareness because uh, most of us come into Buddhism where we are not with you know the, the people that tend to be attracted to this particular form of Buddhism Theravada and Vipassana practices usually are great skeptics doubters more faith types more probably prone toward the more bhakti style religious practices you know, finding the guru and, and worshipping and like that because the faith uh, is then, that faith gives them that kind of direction. But if you don't have that kind of faith, if you tend to be a, a thinker and a doubter, skeptic, then we're turning that, that very uh, ability to doubt and uh, Question things, not to, not toward the convention itself, and not endlessly trying to, you know, make problems around the convention, but use the convention to really look at the way things are, not in terms of your opinions and views of how you think they should be, but the way they actually are at this moment. And with Western people, because we, like, with, uh, in, in Buddhist countries like Thailand, people have a lot of faith. Sada is part of a, you know, their culture is, is based on Buddhism. So there's, there's a lot of faith in teachers and in the Buddhism that, that, that gives them 
a stability, a kind of steadiness. And uh, not many of us have that steadiness from because we're culturally conditioned in a different way. So we can doubt Buddhism, monasticism, Theravada, uh, Thai forest tradition, doubt me, Ajahn Chah, <laughs> or people that you know they want they want heroes or gurus. They, you know, so they you see Westerners going to Thailand and looking for the the arahants, you know the great teachers that they can they can really trust. And if but if they don't see what they're doing, eventually they'll find something wrong with them. You know, because uh, they're expecting a kind of super superhuman being. I remember Ajahn Chah liked to chew beetle nut. And, uh, Westerners, we say we, you know, we think, you know, we, our, most Westerners think of chewing betel nut is a kind of terrible thing. You know, it blackens your teeth and you, you're spitting this red juice into a spittoon. And so we, we think, you know, if he were really attained, he'd certainly be on, be beyond chewing betel nut. <laughs> Make judgments like that. You know, because according to our ideal guru, they wouldn't they wouldn't lower themselves to do anything that gross. <clears throat> so we can we can make judgments about things like that, but not really know see what we're doing. And the kind of conceit, conceitedness that many of us have suffered with. <clears throat> so the but the like with Lung Po Cha he was, he was he was always he was never pointing at himself never saying I am the great master and I'm a arahant and I'm a wise and I know what you need and all that he was is generating uh, you know he he could he could be very charming, charismatic, uh, but he used it only to, to, you know, to draw attention to him, enough attention to where we would listen, and then he was always encouraging us to look at ourselves. It's not in, you know, in trying to find something out there, your, your master or your guru, because the guru is really inside you. So you're putting it back, you know, if you're looking at me as some kind of guru, well then that's okay, but it, it, uh, also I'm directing, I'm not, I'm not encouraging that kind of thinking. Because the teaching is about awareness. So, so any kind of faith or uh, interest in in me as a person, it's not that's not the point, is it? But to uh, you know, what I can do from this position is to encourage you to awaken and see for yourself. Well, this I I like very much. This seems right to me. You know, it seems like something I can, you know, quite uh, joyfully teach because I personally have no desire to be anybody's guru or to set myself up as some kind of specially attained being. That whole way of thinking does not appeal to me. <laughs> because from my own experience is uh, is the the, the the Buddha Dhamma is a very skillful tool that 
that we that we're here to use this tool, learn how to use the tool, rather than to uh, encourage you to keep looking outward towards the teacher or or even the tradition as some kind of thing that you must believe in and attach to. Now in the convention itself, you know, Theravada monasticism that we we use, then this is a this is a convention. So it's to to make our life workable. So it's it's you know it's agreement on behavior and and so forth you know on action speech. Uh, so on this kind of uh, conformative style of monasticism, the conformity isn't isn't uh, done through uh, draconian means like forcing you to. Nobody has ever forced, at least in, in my experience with, with, with people I'm with, to become a monk or a nun. You know, you have to ask. You have to request to do that. So then the, then the, uh, then the, uh, recognize the convention how to, the, the, we agreements on u- the use of the convention which simplifies our life because we're not endlessly kind of making problems on that level you know, if you agree on you know, how, you're going to, how we're going to live with each other and relate to each other then that, that simplifies everything where if we, we didn't each one doing his own thing uh, according to what he or she might want, and that is, we wouldn't form a community. We'd, we'd endlessly be in conflict and, and creating endless complications and problems with each other. We do enough of that even with, a, with a, this convention. <laughs> so, uh, this recognize the convention is, too, is a, is a is a vehicle is for simplification on that level and and notice you know how my monastic life has been my life is very simple really on the level of the material side and the conventional relationships and so forth it's quite the boundaries are clear and and uh, the uh, this I don't have to give a lot of thought to I don't it's not an endless kind of Issue on level of worldly conditioning, how to make a living, what I'm going to wear, what I'm going to eat. <laughs> uh, I saved all that, all that by being an alms mendicant. My relationships are are uh, brahmacharya. Not sexually uh, active relationships. That simplifies everything. So then, the because of that kind of streamlining on the on the uh, material world, social world, then. Attention can really, one can really pay attention to the, to the complications of one's emotional habits and thoughts and views and opinions. Because the daily life here isn't, for me, is not just an endless kind of, you know, kind of, Make decisions and who's right and who's wrong and and uh, according to what this person thinks or that person thinks. So much of it is 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 uh, just you no know, the 
We just do it the way the tradition encourages us. That also has its emotional difficulties because there can be a lot of resistance to any kind of form of limitation. In that, when you, when you, you know, the convention is is one that puts boundaries on behavior. So, and that can be frustrating to us. And so many of us experience rebelliousness and repulsion and stubbornness as mental states uh, in regard to the the boundaries of Buddhist monasticism. But eventually, you know, one being I began to see that no need to do that. This, this is what I've decided to do. Then uh, I get a good perspective on the convention, learn the vinaya. And then uh, get on with the real practice. You know, this, the boundaries are defined, and and so that's then when I, uh, you know, my desires want to go beyond the boundaries. I can be aware at that point. Be aware of that kind of, you know, resentment or uh, rebellion, rebelliousness, stubbornness, these kind of, and a lot of it in, in uh, early monastic life. Resistance, criticism of the convention, re- rebelliousness, stubbornness, conceit, a lot of conceit, uh, you know, forming judgments about it my own opinions and I thought how I could you know if I could set it up in a better way than they're doing it now and these kind of conceited thoughts began to I began to see them in terms of Dhamma because uh, from my own social background which was quite hedonistic and liberal and free to live within a very orthodox conservative Buddhist monastery in northeast Thailand is uh, you know, it's quite a, you know, quite a contrast. And the, the emotional habits, attitudes and ideals were formed in the, in the, in the, in the American style. <laughs> and I was living in a, in a, in a, in a forest monastery in Thailand. So this, you know, created a lot of tension but that was where the teaching began to take back because that tension was suffering and I could see it begin to notice it now in the monastic form the attitude is one to be develop contentment and like a this attitude of contentment is a is a wonderful foundation for practice. So, but yet emotionally, I'm, I was conditioned to not be content. Like modern society, American society, we were always, you know, encouraged to, you know, things could always get better, and uh, always, you know, that what we have right now could be improved on and the idea is trying to make everything better and better and contentment sounded very passive and kind of even stupid like somebody that was content was like like a cow or you know contented as a cow it wasn't a, a state that was encouraged in the American system in fact, the whole capitalist system is one based on making you discontented so that you spend your money, you know, what you have now, and there's always something better being offered, new, improved, and and better than last year, is always being advertised, you know. What does this do to your mind? Last year's toothpaste is now new, improved, better than last year, so you the tendency to, you know, if you 
get intimidated by such advertisements. You can't be content with something that is is old-fashioned and passe. So in uh, Buddhist monasticism, like the four requisites, that learning to not now contentment isn't a isn't an imperative. I can't, you know, to say you should be content with the four requisites, and that is uh, is is not what I'm saying. You know, that's that's an impossible demand because the contentment comes through reflection, through considering. So, like the reflection on the four requisites is 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 not like to intimidate you and make you feel because you're you're not content with the four requisites that there, and you should be to make you feel guilty about it. But it's a direction, you know, a way of reflecting on discontentment. eventually you you know through seeing through sati sampachanya you begin to see the pain of being attached to this discontented feeling or wanting you know always always thinking about how you can make things better improve and achieve and attain and then you you begin to have this well I have enough food uh, robes shelter Medicine for illness is good enough. I don't need the best food, the best shelter, the best robes, the best medicine. <coughs> Not demanding the best, because the reflection of monastics is on you know the the low lowest possible thing of of the four requisites like the the rag robes or the Food that's dropped into your bowl, the bindabat, or the, or the uh, root of a tree. If nobody, if you can't find any shelter, then you you live at the root of a tree, or or uh, fermented urine, medicine. The kind of these are the lowest levels, uh, lowest standards for requisite. But it's not saying that we have to live at that low standard. It's not meant that we should all, you know, people offer nice cloths for robes that we should reject it and go around looking for rags to sew them together. It's not, it's not making the four requisite standard as an imperative that we should live by. But it is, uh, it gives you this sense of, of gratitude because we always get better than, than, than what is than what we reflect on in the when we reflect on the four requisites. At least in my thirty eight years in monastic life, it's always been much better than than that. I've never had to go around, you know, taking old cloth off of corpses to make a robe or drink fermented cow's urine when I'm sick or things like this. It's never never no problem. <laughs> but what it does for me is, is uh, because this is the, because of the reflective nature, then it gives me this sense of gratitude. What I call kadanyu, because people are always providing. You know, they, you know, lay people always they want to give you the best that they can, you know, like the food yesterday when the, the people came offering the best food. They weren't just offering, you know, just their worst food. It was always, you know, an enormous kind of effort to make things delicious, tasty and beautiful and whatnot. But this is, you know, it, it generates this this sense of dana, of generosity. And then we we can go around looking at the food and I don't like this, I don't like that. 
and uh, we get snooty about being vegetarians and looking down on meat and things. These are important mental states to witness to the kind of, you know, the opinions we form uh, around the requisite, you know, and how ungrateful or or uh, we can be or insensitive to the fact that that, uh, that they, uh, the requisites we can just take for granted and not be content with them. So in developing this awareness around the requisites, it, I find the contentment, I find contentment as a result and gratitude. Now these two experiences of contentment and gratitude are a beautiful foundation for practice. You know, it's like, like it's a joyful life I'm living because it, I'm content, I'm happy with my life and grateful for the, uh, for what is offered, the generosity. So that this, this to me is, gives me a, a, a very strong basis for reflection, for samadhi, for concentration. Developing the jhana factors, piti and sukha, vidaka vichara, piti, sukha, ekagata. And people talk a lot about getting jhanas these days. Watnanachat is a real, you know, dedicated to jhanas and get, attaining the jhanas <coughs> as a kind of imperative for practice. But I don't find that that attitude is, for me, it's been very useful because when I, when, when I feel I have to attain the jhanas, it brings back this sense of me, tomato, having to get these levels of concentration. It puts me back into the old mode of, of attaining, which is very easy for me to do because that's how I'm culturally programmed. Achiever, attain, a competitive, and you know, get the BA, MA, PhD style. So in the Thai forest tradition, you know, this kind of reflected that whole that whole mind set of being brought up in a competitive system uh, and achieving goal-oriented social system into a life that is based on dana, sila, pavana. It's, it's almost the reverse of, of the conditioning process. So knowing how, how my, the conditioning of my mind works, I know I can't trust that. So this, this awareness, sati, sampachanya, then allows as to reflect on what what is the result if I get into into attaining jhanas, I'm easily just pulled back into into that uh, attaining mode, where developing awareness around the four requisites help to develop the jhana factors. You know, without without trying to make get the jhana factors they happen quite naturally through you know the, the rising of vitaka vichara is the actual reflective ability and then the, the result is piti sukha or rapture happiness and one pointedness So when we reflect on the four requisites, you know, it's not an intimidating, it's not like a, you should, you know, it's not one of these intimidating kind of things that you should be content with the four requisites and you're not. 
I mean, you can interpret it like that if you want, but, but that's not very helpful. That just makes me rebellious. You know, somebody tells me I should be content with the four requisites. I feel aversion arising. But, uh, so, so this is not like coming from that position, but from encouraging this reflection. Because to know that you're not discontented is also important. To know how discontented one is. How, how, uh, you know, how conceited one can be about things. About the convention. The conceit, uh, I, I could make a better convention than this, or I, I know how to improve the, what we have, and, and the, the opinionatedness that I can produce. I need to see that and, and recognize the suffering of grasping those, those kind of views. You know, so I can prove it to myself. Is this, I want to spend my life as a monk quibbling around the rules and conventions and and making it modern and up-to-date and suitable to the West and blah, 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 like that. That's how I want to spend my monastic life. Uh, Or I felt when I was given the Upasampada that this gave me the, you know, this was like the Sangha's agreement that I have the right to use the Dhamma Vinaya for for enlightenment, for practice. So the important thing to me was not so much the the form or the, the outward form. I was willing to agree whatever they wanted, you know, they decided that was what I would do. Because it was based on morality. I was never asked to do uh, commit immoral acts. Sometimes I had to conform to things I didn't really like or see the point of. But I didn't want to make a problem because that wasn't, I wasn't interested on that level of trying to make the convention perfect according to an ideal I have of how it should be. But use the convention uh, as a vehicle to give me that opportunity to really look and see the lopa, dosa, moa, greed, hatred and delusion that uh, that I would be attached to, that I would attach to. So in reflecting, you know, like on the requisites, you know, the, you can say, I should be content with the, with whatever accommodation they give me. Then you're making an ideal about it, isn't it? You're, you're idealizing it. I should be someone who's content, but I don't like, I don't, they gave me a lousy room and I don't like it. <laughs> and I'm senior to so-and-so and he has a better better room than I do. And, oh no, then we create a problem, isn't it? So, <clears throat> At least we can, we can, uh, you know, use this, be aware of our discontentment, of our, you know, our, our jealousy or envy or, or feeling of being offended or not appreciated, uh, not respected. These can be recognized in terms of, you know, mental conditions that arise. We begin to look at them in, and recognize them, not in terms of judging, but in recognizing them as conditions that have arisen, learning to to let them be what they are. Let them be, let them go, allow them to be what they are. So if, if I'm feeling very upset because uh, somebody uh, has, uh, you know, if I go to another place and they don't treat me with very much respect or uh, and uh, I don't feel I'm being treated properly and respect the way I should be 
I can use that. You know, the feeling of, of any kind of emotion I might generate from being upset or offended or feeling like I want to leave and I don't like the place. I develop an awareness around these kind of, of uh, feelings. I can, I can learn from, from uh, life as I experience. Then you can grasp that. You say, well, you should just reflect on your feelings and not make, do make any, you know, people are being, you know, whatever. You're just going to take that, you know, disrespect from others and make another problem about it. But there's a flow, a natural flow that we recognize, you know, and we can, you know, it's not a matter of, of just resigning yourself passively to a situation, but in reflecting on it. Seeing what's actually happening, how it how it does affect you, how it how you do feel, it's like this. You know, it is what it is. And so in this way we can use the whole flow of our lives, you know, the the good fortune, the misfortunes, the the when things are fair and, and right, when things are unfair, uh, these are these are not obstructions to enlightenment. You know, so your health, your 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 emotional habits, only none, none of these are obstructions to enlightenment, unless it's the clinging to them, the out of ignorance blind attachment that is the problem. So in this way, the, the Buddhist monasticism is, this is a tool to use uh, for awareness. It's not an identity to attach <laughs> and yet we can be very attached to our seniority and being an ajahn and all these, these kind of things but that's fair enough but to recognize the attachment because we have we learn through through can being conceited and attached and opinionated and and offended and selfish and all that. We learn from all these states. You know, we, the point is to, 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 to give you the, the confidence to recognize them, not to, to judge them. <clears throat> like if you idolize monastics and say, we should be, I shouldn't feel any selfishness. Because I'm a monk, monks, bhikkhus shouldn't be selfish. Is an ideal. But what is selfishness and conceit? Things like this. What is it? You know, when it's present, to know it for what it is, not to judge it. You know, if I start thinking I shouldn't be, I'm feeling very selfish and conceited, and, uh, and I, I shouldn't. I'm aware of that. Also, tendency to want to complicate it by saying I shouldn't feel like this, I'm not very good and uh, I feel guilty about it. And then I make it more than what it is. So this is where it's like like when I'm feeling really selfish and conceited. And this is not easy to do. I've not, I've not found it easy to really admit it, recognize it. It's like this. This feeling of I'm right and I know what's best for everybody and and in all about me, what I think and my view, it's like this. Where the other, the superego can jump in and say, you shouldn't feel like that, you're wrong. Because you're just selfish and conceited and arrogant and you shouldn't be. And then, then, the, then it becomes, and 
when, when, but if that's what I get caught in, the, the, the judging, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't feel what you're feeling, you're wrong. Then I also begin to notice that. Start with, you know, so you're, you're accessing what is the, the way the, the, the emotional habits were. So we have, you know, we have this, this, uh, tyrannical force in us, very judgmental kind of super ego, they call it, where you, you know, it's always on, on your case. In other words, you, you feel, uh, you feel, um, you look at the food today and the, and you go to the food line and, and you feel averse and last thing you feel is any gratitude or appreciation for it. And then you think, I shouldn't, after that talk this morning that Ajahn Sumedho gave, <laughs> I shouldn't feel like this, you know. I'm not a very, and we go make it into complication. So recognize that the four requisite standards are, are not telling you how you should feel. About, but they're standards to reflect when they give you a standard, a kind of basis to reflect on and see the, the discontentment, the fussiness, the, the opinions that, that do come up. And they are what they are, rather than, when we make them more than what they are, then they, I shouldn't feel like this, I'm selfish, and I'm not a very good monk, and, on, and then we, we, uh, we make it into more than what it is. Make it me and mine and it becomes very complicated and guilt and shame arise. Some things are hard to admit too. You know, if you're, if you are proud, and, uh, I've certainly have to deal with this. Uh, pride is a very <laughs> powerful feeling for me. So, uh, being proud and that is, uh, it's, it's very difficult sometimes to really look at something. But once you, you know, and, 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 and allow it to be what it is. Because ideally I don't, you know, I don't want to be proud. And yet, so many of the emotional habits are around that, pride. So, so, uh, so, uh, you know, what do you do about it? Keep judging every time pride comes up and then, then you shouldn't be and, you should be humble and so on. <laughs> you don't get anywhere with that. Because I can never satisfy the superego. I never can be humble enough for my superego to ever say, oh, you're, you're okay now. It always says, it always criticizes me. That's its function, is to criticize me. <clears throat> so, then it's also easy to blame others. To see pride in others and to condemn it. So in, in, uh, in my own practice, and beginning to recognize what pride is, not as, not judging it, but recognizing it. The reality of it and attachment to it. Once you see that, then you can you can let go of it. You can let it be. It's uh, you know it's it's uh, not a matter of getting rid of it or of becoming someone who is never proud, but in recognizing the way it is. So, this, you know, this, hoping these morning reflections are, they're encouragements. Uh, it's like empowering you. Uh, so many of us 
you know, lack empowerment. Um, we we see ourselves in terms of we we maybe look to somebody else to to tell me, am I where am I? Am I can I do it? Can I practice? And and uh, we you know we can easily look to authority and and uh, opinions of others. But what I'm trying to do now is is encourage you to learn to recognize this this ability that's natural to you, to each one of you. This is isn't isn't just monastic, this is each one of each each individual human being in this room. This is encouraging you to to trust in your awareness of life, to learn to d- work from there, to to take refuge in it. And, and so that during this winter's retreat, you know, this encouragement to, to recognize, say, these these formal retreats, because even though it's natural to us, we 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 forget it or we don't recognize it. Because the power of the world, the emotional habits, and that is so intimidating, so strong. You know, the human body itself and the social conditioning and all this is such a powerful thing, has such a powerful effect on consciousness that we find ourselves always being kind of overwhelmed and intimidated by uh, the world around us, what others think of us and say about us and what we think about ourselves is so such a strong uh, intimidating habit that this is why I put this emphasis on this awareness rather than than trying to just tell you how you should be and 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 uh, behave yourselves and do good and and don't rock the boat and and so forth and give all the the advice you know good advice as you know all that anyway already, but but in terms of here and now, uh, you know this this uh, learning to recognize this ability, like uh, with emotional experience, to recognize it's like this. It's a reflective capacity. It's the, it's the gate to the deathless. It's where. You once you establish that you trust it, then it gives you perspective on the sangsara or the conditioned realm, which isn't judgmental, but it's discerning. It knows things for what they are. It's not knows conditions. It's, uh, it has it's like what Krishnamurti called choiceless awareness. 